Welcome to Coach Aria's podcast, Coach to Lead. So, welcome everybody. Um, this is one of our amazing sessions in our Awake, Aware, Arise virtual conference at Coach Aria, where we're going to be challenging your thinking as coaches and leaders on what leadership and coaching could be and the impact that this can make on our world and these are really challenging times so we're bringing everyone together and have amazing speakers like David Clutterbuck with us to share their insights and their wisdom and I'm Leah I'm the youth program lead for Coach Aria and I will be hosting this session David Clutterbuck to introduce you <laughs> so today's session is on coaching for a more ethical world something actually really close to my heart we need more ethical leaders we need a more ethical world and I cannot wait to hear what you have to say um, David is the co-founder of EMCC, the European Mentoring Coaching Council. I hope I've got this right, now global. So we're covering the whole world now, not just Europe. And David has also written over 70 books or co-authored um, on 70 books. And I've had the pleasure of having to study some of them for my masters. So it's quite an honor to be here. So David, it is over to you. <laughs> Thank you. Very much, Leah. So I, I, this is a, a subject that's dear to my heart, the, the whole issue of ethics and, and Leia mentioned the word wisdom, um, the two things that are intricately uh, in, in, uh, entwined. And, the, um, uh, and of course, in terms of mentoring, we go back all the way, the origins of mentoring are in the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And so there's so much here about being wiser. And, and, and if you like, ethics is the ability to use our wisdom to create positive outcomes for ourselves and for other people. Um, if you like, it's for, to make it, ethics, ethics are what's required in order to make a world that's more sustainable, more livable, and so forth. And so I'm gonna go through some of the, 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 the practicalities and share some frameworks with you and talk about authenticity and its relationship to ethics. And I think the focus we've got today, how do we promote ethical behavior in ourselves and our clients? The big question. Um, how do we and our clients remain ethical and authentic in politicized corporate and society environments? How do we actually encourage ethical ethics um, in the workplace? It's a big challenge for us and to a large extent, coaches have sort of ducked out from this one. There's no, no, <clears throat> I'm here to, to, to coach the, 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 my, my client, my focus is on my client. Increasingly, we're beginning to question, is that ethical? Look at the situation, you're coaching a client to, uh, to, to succeed, but is that person the right person to succeed in that organization? You might be coaching individual people within a team, but does a bunch of people, all of whom are individuals who are performing better, automatically make a higher performing team? Well, the answer is no, it doesn't. It may actually make a word, in fact, more often than not, a team full of high performers will, act will actually be a lower performing team than one of moderate performers. We have some issues here. Everywhere we look, we have ethical issues and the ethical codes of practice, while they're very helpful and they stop us doing really stupid things, still don't, don't, don't allow us to address these really big issues of the roles of coaches 
um, and mentors to <clears throat> in, in promoting an ethical world. So I'm going to try and explore some of the issues here. And forgive me, I can't cover everything here because it's such a big area, but I hope to raise enough, enough thinking in your minds to be able to ask better questions than I'm asking. Because always the, the key is not to find the better answers, it's to find better questions. What we're seeing now across the world is a lot of problem, problems relating to, for example, short-term thinking. One in this week's sermon, um, or this month's <coughs> Harvard Business Review, there's an article about um, the, the, how many organizations are rowing back on empowerment. What they're doing, for example, people working from home during the COVID, COVID crisis, <coughs> they're installing software to, to, to monitor how much time they do, they're spending on their computer and what they're doing on their computer. Now, you know, how does that fit with an ethical society? Is that, in, in, in terms of human dignity, is this unethical? My personal view would be yes, but that's a question. The ethics are not, there's no right answer in ethics. There are all, there's a range of different right, right answers which we choose according to circumstance. <clears throat> then we've got the politics of fear and polarization. Looking around the world, the United States, India, Turkey, Russia, also China, so many, half, half of Africa, um, we see that the people in the leadership positions in those countries are ruling by dividing people, by polarizing them. And if you create <coughs> conditions of fear, the moderate, the moderate middle disappears. Um, it's like when you put two people into an, with, with strongly opposing views into a debate, they, in, they come out of it more strongly entrenched in their previous views because they don't have the skills of dialogue. They only have the skills of preaching and, 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 and insisting that I'm right. They think they're even righter before than they did. Even if that means in certain circumstances, it's okay to go around injecting yourself with bleach or, 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 or whatever it is that uh, the latest inanity from, uh, from President Trump. Um, the, this issue of, of, of authentic leadership vacuum. There is a crisis of confidence in our leaders. People no longer trust their leaders to, 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 to have the, their, their well-being at heart. It goes back to a study over 40 years ago, which was done in Ford motor plants. And looking at, at, at the, the, the local leadership, the plant leadership, what, what actually made people feel that they, the, leader, the, the leadership was effective? What empowered people and made them committed to their jobs? And it turned out that there were two factors. Do, do the leaders know what they're doing? And do they care about me and my, and my colleagues? If, they, if those two boxes were ticked, people felt confident and secure and empowered. If they weren't, even if they got a lousy manager immediately above them, but, the, but if they, those boxes weren't ticked, then that's where you had all the industrial problems and unrest. <clears throat> we, we still have this authentic leadership vacuum and potentially it's getting worse. Now there's no, I can't evidence that, but look around us, you know, where do we see great leaders, le leaders who you can look up to and say, I would like to be like them. And if, and if, if we can't say that, then there's something deeply, deeply wrong. <clears throat> so as we've already, as I've already indicated, one of the challenges for coaches is that one-to-one -one coaching might be part of the problem, not part of the solution. 
um, we may be making things worse. And part of the, the, the role in, in creating the Global Team Coaching Institute, uh, which uh, we've done this year, has been <coughs> to try and redress that, to actually equip more and more coaches with the skills to coach the leader and the team, to get that balance right between coaching individuals and coaching teams. And what about our impact on things like climate change and poverty? There's a wonderful movement now of many, many coaches coming together to try and see how they can influence climate change. Um, less less of, a, of a focus on things like poverty. And yet we're in a privileged position. We get to talk with the leaders of large corporations, with political leaders, <clears throat> with military leaders and others, people who do have the ability to, to bring positive change about. So how are we using those conversations? Are we simply saying, well, I'm here just to improve their performance or in, in, a, in a very narrow focus, the goals that we set in the relationship, that's what I'm gonna work on? Or are we here to have a bigger, more significant impact on the world around us? And I think that's a, 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 an ethical challenge for every coach. And one <clears throat> which we can make, make our own minds up about how, to what extent are we going to rise to that challenge? And this whole thing of, of codes of practice, codes of practice are wonderful, but they set a baseline. They do not come anywhere near turning somebody into a role model for ethical behavior or a role model for wisdom. And it's that step beyond the, the, the codes of practice. Codes of practice are a hygiene factor. They're about the doing of coaching. They are not about the being of coaching. And so, Here's a bit, another big challenge for us as coaches. So let's just get some things in the chat room. What ethical clients have cli uh, uh, dilemmas have clients brought to you or you may have met for yourself in your coaching? Just <clears throat> let's see in the, in the chat room and, uh, and Leah will, will pull out some of the things that are most interesting. Yep, we have, okay, first one from Karen, a coachee being aware of corruption amongst colleagues. Yeah, what okay. do you do? Yes. Yep. Okay, Michael, coaching siblings when not being aware of them being related. Ooh, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Next one from Dharmesh, layoffs in crucial times. Yeah. Anja, my first coaching assignment at a tobacco company. I don't like smoking. Very interesting. Let, let me comment on that one because that, that's, a, that's a brilliant one. <clears throat> this is a debate we've had, we had last year. Um, <clears throat> And the, de the debate was around, <clears throat> should the coach work with a tobacco company helping its employees to achieve greater work-life balance? I'm truncating it, there was a bigger comment, <clears throat> but this is the core of the, of the issue. Now, you know, on the one hand, um, we do not wish to, do, to, to promote, or most of us would not wish to put, promote a tobacco, a tobacco company. Um, on the other hand, we have a duty of care towards anyone. Like a doctor, you don't, you don't, you don't refuse to treat somebody because they, um, they're a criminal or, or whatever. You, 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 you are there as, as to, to support people as a human, a human to human. So what is the judgment here? And in the end, <clears throat> the judgment was very individual, of course, as to whether people took part. But it was, what is the objective of this coaching? Is this coaching about increasing the profitability or increasing the reach and sales of the tobacco company? Or is it about the, well, the human welfare of people inside the organization? 
and there was the boundary created. Now you can argue one way or the other, which is, is that, and that's a, and it's a very personal thing, but it's a very clear ethical dilemma that we dealt with. Anybody, any more there? Yeah. We have, we've got one from Dumi. One of my individual executive clients challenged me on coaching, reinforcing elitist practices. We also have one from Victoria. Mm -hmm sponsor being upset because coached employee resigned i imagine that's quite a common one actually. <laughs> yeah. I, well i i think it's as a, as a defense mechanism that there is an ethical dilemma here <clears throat> and that is in and actually contracting with the sponsor yeah you know, that this should be part of the contract that one of the one of the the, the outcomes may be that the client is in the wrong role and, and uh, you know and, and how do they want if, if that is the case do they want that person to leave um in a positive manner or in a negative manner uh, you know, well, you know, if it go if it's in a positive manner then that person may be available for re-recruiting later um if you're going to say right you've resigned you're going to be uh, escorted by security out of the building with your contents of your back of your desk in a, in, a, in a plastic bag, that's probably not going to create a relationship or with that person. I'm not going to create them into an ambassador for the company later. Any more? We have, we've, Angie's just replied and said it was about the human welfare, but surely the company was interested in the person being able to do their job. So that was in response to the tobacco yes. company. Exactly. Um, not as simple as it looks, is it? <laughs> And we have, and I'm sorry, I'm going to pronounce people's names wrong here. Um, so pre-apologies, but Ben Gopal, paying money to get more business. Mm. Um, it's on the context, but yes, very interesting. And then Karen, sponsor investing in leadership coaching, coachy telling me early on that he is looking to leave the organization. So that's an ethical dilemma for the coach. What, what, what do you tell? You're bound by confidentiality. Um, and one of the things that we can do is to have a conversation with that client. How are you going to be ethical in the way that you manage this issue? Um, one, the, there are two possibility, possible ethical answers here. One of them is that as a coach, if this comes up in the contracting, then you have to make a decision can you actually go ahead with that relationship because it's under for we said to be under false pretenses to the to the sponsor um, if it if, if it gets revealed during the course of the of the coaching then the then the confidentiality um, re, um responsibility towards the client takes precedent but that's again it's an arguable case but that that's that's how we would typically argue those that kind of case. David, we have quite a few more. Would okay. you like me to go through them? Let, let's, let, let's save the rest of them till, till later. Otherwise, we could be just, just dealing with that one. I agree. <laughs> but you can see, I, I can see that we've touched some really good, good nerves here. Maybe we need to collect these up and, um, and if everybody agreed to distribute them without names, that'd be a, a good idea. So just look at these statistics. Um, this uh, is a, a 2018 uh, study of, of the states. 30% uh, of employees personally involved uh, observed misconduct in the previous 12 months. Um, and unethical practices were instrumental in more than half of the largest bankruptcies 
in the, in the previous 30 years. These are just the tip of the iceberg. Um, other studies have shown that, that young graduates joining, or, um, joining organizations, I, I forget what the figure was, it was very high, it was something like 70% of them were, were faced with unethical, being asked to do something unethical in their first two or three years within an organization. There's so much data here. Um, what it tells us is that ethical, unethical behavior is rife. Um, I do recall one person I was coaching looking around the, um, the, the big open plan office in the bank that he was sitting in, he was working in and saying, <clears throat> it's fascinating. He says, there, now that guy over there, he's involved in insider trading or been out, no, in rate fixing. Yeah. Um, he said, now he's going to jail. And look at him, that guy over there is going to get likely to go to jail too. And that one, um, a fascinating conversation. I couldn't see any of these people, but wow, what a situation to be in. Um, we could, this is, this is not, you know, unethical behavior is not, not necessarily the norm, but it is, it is actually a very commonplace thing that we see. And the Adam Grant's uh, book, uh, uh, um, Originals, in one study across manufacturing, service retail, etc. The more frequently you, as an employee, you first voice concerns or indeed voice ideas, suggestions upwards, the less likely you were to get raises and promotions over a two year period. Don't, so the other, the other words, keep your head down. So, yeah, uh, if you stick your head up, it's likely to be shot at. This is, this is not good news, is it? <clears throat> so one of the measures we've been playing with in our work with on ethics in organizations is ethical risk. So it's the level of openness and psychological safety in a culture. Um, so it involves, you know, if, if the cultural norm is poisonous, how much is there an expectation? It typically goes along with an expectation that people will go along with it. Fear cultures are, are typical of this. And so there's an issue here as well in what do people see when they look at the decisions that are made? Do they see this in an organization that's taken decisions <clears throat> that, um, um, uh, that, are eth that, are, uh, that put a high value on ethicality or that are decisions made for short-term advantage. I don't know what it's like in the various countries that, that, um, that you're all in, but <clears throat> one example of this was one of the big pub chains, um, which basically was um, um, put, fired most of its staff right at the beginning of, of, of the um, uh, of, of the COVID crisis on the basis they could save more money doing it that way if they had to close it. Um, <clears throat> rather than say, well, okay, we have a, a loyalty towards these people. Um, and um, you know, there's a government furlough scheme to support it. But basically, <clears throat> that would have still cost them money, so they got rid of everybody. Um, or, or, or that was the plan. And, and the reputation of that business is in the gutter. Uh, and, they had, and it wasn't thought through. Um, and yet we see so much of this, this again, short-term thinking, a, a failure to look at the ethical and moral considerations, the responsibilities towards other people. Um, and so if we define an ethical dilemma, <coughs> an ethical dilemma is not as straightforward as that. Those, well, the example I just gave was not an ethical dilemma, it was just sheer, blunt, unethical, immoral behavior. Ethical dilemma is something different. An ethical dilemma happens when somebody doesn't know which, which of several choices to make. Uh, when you've got more values competing for the same priority. 
and you, you, they can be all sorts of values, personal, organizational, society, or any mixture of the three. Let me give you a practical example. Um, many, many years ago, Barclays in South Africa <coughs> had the dilemma that it was being urged and pressurized, particularly from the United States and from pressure groups in, the, in Europe, <coughs> to close down its South African operations. And I remember, remember in, interviewing um, the chief executive about this whole, this whole issue. And he said, well, look, we, we've, we've spent a lot of time and a lot, had a lot of sleepless nights trying to work out the ethics behind this. <clears throat> he said, on the one hand, we totally are, are totally and utterly against apartheid. We think it, we, uh, we, we, have no, we have no wish in any way to support apartheid. And whatever possible in our, employ in our employment policies inside the bank, we try and, and um, where it's not made illegal there, we will, we will find ways around it to, to support our, our employees and treat them as, e as equals. But he said, if, if, if we would, and if we were to, but if we were to accept that, we, that it's not possible, that we, that we, that we are being, that, the, that um, it's not possible to, do, to be totally um, free with the way that we work with our employees, therefore that we should close down, that the implications of that are significantly worse. We have, I forget the number of employees, <coughs> well, let's say <coughs> 20,000 <coughs> 20, employees. On average, every one of those employees is the, is the primary breadwinner for a family of seven or eight other people. So if we just close down, that means something like 150,000 people will be thrown into poverty. What responsible employer could do that? Now, there were people who would argue against that position. It's quite, you can see that you can make it and say, no, 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 we have to make a stand and so forth. So, but it's a moral, it, it's a matter of moral perspective at the least damage, if you, um, our argument versus, versus the, 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 the strict, what's morally right. Uh, it's, there is no, there is no absolutely pure right answer, but where we've got these conflicting values, <clears throat> the clarity about why we've chosen to go with one set of values versus the other is enables us, us to maintain our own authenticity and also to maintain reputation. And as coaches, we can help organizations to do this, we can do it ourselves, and we can help our clients to do it. So basically, when we see ethical dilemmas arising in organizations, it's basically because you don't actually, people, ethical dilemmas get buried. Nobody wants to talk about them. Um, no, 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 no group of, 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 uh, of surgeons in a hospital, for example, feels comfortable about shopping one of their colleagues who they've worked with for years who happens now to have a drink problem. Um, and yet they, there is a moral obligation and a legal obligation for them to do so, but they choose not to notice things. And this is a case again of the wrong priorities dominating the, the, the loyalty to colleagues versus patient safety. Um, and it's because they can't step out of it. The net perspective is too narrow. They don't see it in that <clears throat> wonderful way is if, if this were being paid out, done out publicly or acted out publicly, would we be doing the same thing? If people could see what was going on, would they, how would we, be, how would we feel and how would we behave? So ethical dilemmas are, are, are created by secrecy and by fear. Um, 
the kind of thing that we see, <clears throat> the most common things are um, financial reporting, high pressure work environments, um, particularly where people are being pushed to hit tough targets, stretch goals. Stre stretch goals, particularly in a, in a marketing or sales environment, are closely associated with, with unethical behavior. People will, if they're, gonna, if they're not gonna hit a target by, a, when they're gonna miss it by a little bit, they will cheat and steal in order to make it happen. Where you've got a lot of competition in a crowded market, um, where people don't talk about that, you're, you're discouraged from opening up um, big cultural issues. Um, where, you, where you basically find that customers have been treated unfairly, but they've got nobody to, to complain to until they actually go to the press or, or, or somewhere else or employees being treated unfairly and not having anybody else to go to. And <clears throat> codes of conduct just aren't good enough. Um, they tend to, you know, they can't cover everything and then you try and cover everything. They're so, so complex. Um, there's lots of wriggle room in, in, in the cracks. Um, uh, and you know, what you get is people, well, I've adhered to the letter. Uh, that's what it said. Uh, and rather than, and even if that was something that was palpably that and any reasonable person would say, yes, but that's not what was meant. Um, I'm always reminded <coughs> of the person who was driving, um, driving the wrong way down a runway street and was stopped by a policeman. And she says, but I'm only driving one way. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a similar piece of tautological logic. Um, and here we go. <coughs> And people can be confused because ethics aren't fixed. The ethics that, one of the big problems we have now with the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the, the whole pushback against colonialism um, is that our societies in the, in, in the West were actually, and indeed in many other, in many other countries, were founded on slavery. Um, and, 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 and what we now regard as totally unethical behavior but which 400 years ago was seen as quite normal. And indeed, if we think back, slavery was only abolished in the last bits of Europe, in Russia, in, the, in, in, in 19, 1915, or was it 19, 1917, when, when Russia fell to, to, to the, um, to, to, to the, um, when the Tsar fell and was, was assassinated. So we, 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 if we think about ethics as in the terms of how, what we believe right now, it's, 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 it creates all sorts of complications because ethics relate to the society in which you're in. The ancient Greeks, we, what we, we think of, of, of fantastic about <coughs> the, uh, they, they, the word ethics comes from there. And yet, yet the ethical behavior, the ethics of the, of the Greek society, I think has many elements which we would find appalling now. And so where do, how does it, we have to accept, accept that ethics are something that constantly evolves um, and that, and, and the degree to which we can be judgmental about people whose ethics come from a different era, or who lived in a different era, is uh, I think we are probably being unethical in applying our ethics today to the to the to the ethical environment of people in the in a, in, a, in a different time and a different situation. And that's a, that's a, a big challenge. Somebody can probably come back to me on that one. I I, I expect. Um, it's often dependent on conflict. There's, you know, there's usually two or more legitimate obligations that people have, as in the, the Barclays example. And what we tend to do, <clears throat> we rationalize things away. Oh, it doesn't really matter. It's okay. It's, it's okay. Um, well, a real example, it's okay to steal toilet paper. 
from the office because you know no it's not going it, to it's just it doesn't won't make any difference in the corporate profits um and yet of course it's not good it's not good it's not acceptable because it is theft so you know, we, we we can rationalize things away very easily and so people justify unethical behavior by saying it's not really illegal or immoral um <clears throat> it's in the company's best interests as the engineers of Volkswagen no doubt thought while they were falsifying tests um, of course, it wasn't in the company's best interest because when it catches up with the company, the implications of sales, they, 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 the, 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 the cost of implications of the, 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 this, of this terrible thing that they did was, was, was much greater than any savings they might have made. It's never going to be found out, so it's safe to do it. That's a, that's a common one that we, that we see. And the company will protect me. Well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Believe that one if you believe in fairies and, 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 uh, and the flat earth. Um, it's, there's, it, but people convince themselves. What we found with ethical coaching and mentoring is that it's a, a, a confidential learning relationship between peers. So <clears throat> it, it helps the, the, the mentee or the coachee resolve ethical issues. So I've got an ethical problem. What's the best? How do I need to think this through? It helps them to actually recognize when they've got an ethical issue sometimes it's not, not obvious to them. They're just really worried about something, they feel anxious about it, but they haven't seen it in terms of this is an ethical dilemma. It also helps to change the culture of the organization to make the whole organization more open and transparent and ethical. And therefore it enables you to create more authentic, better values driven leaders who are again able to become the role models for ethicality in their organizations. And one of the close associations we observe, but which we can't, uh, we've never been able to fully prove, um, <clears throat> is, is where you have ethical role models at the top, you will tend to have ethical, much more ethical behavior um, all the way through an organization. Um, but that's a whole area of research. So we can describe it as about um, ethical coaching. I've, I've changed it, I've, I've got the words coaching and mentoring um, interchangeably here. Um, simply because we call it both. But it's about helping others to make better decisions at work that will affect the well-being of others. It's a moral context to help people evaluate business processes and for resolving conflict between business and social imperatives. And the key things are, let, is there an ethical issue present? Can we have a process to evaluate the options? And can we actually check and review the decisions we make to see were they really ethical decisions? And that's all it is. It's very simple at that level. Of course, it's much more complex than actually doing it. So core here, how do you develop ethical behavior in yourself and how do you develop it in other people? And that's a, a, a that's, it sounds simple. It's a big challenge. So <clears throat> when we're help, helping a client think about bringing an ethical dilemma to, co to, to coaching, um, what data can they build, can they give you that would help you to understand what's going on here? It's no good. I think we've got a problem here. It's, look, where's the data? What, what do you know and not know about this? There, have they done some reflection beforehand? Have they thought about their own values and how those values might be affecting how they see this issue? Um, and when they come for discussion, are they in a, an appropriate mind frame to make the most of the dialogue you're going to have with them? Now, Clearly, if somebody is deeply distressed, that's not going to be easy for them. 
So our, 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 our responsibility then as, as, as a coach or as a mentor is to help them actually calm down and, and be able to come into a more rational, more open environment or, 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 or frame of mind. Um, and and you know, it, it may take time for them to do that. But it's important that they, that they are open to thinking about the issue in a, uh, without being totally panicked by the whole thing um, or totally angry about things. So they have to step back from it, if you like. And, and, and helping them to do that may take quite a while. Um, but that's often the first thing that, we, that we, we, have, we, we have to do as a coach is help them step back from it emotionally sufficiently to start thinking about it rationally. If we then um, want to be clear with our clients what we want from them, what we need from them, we need them to be honest in presenting it, this issue to us. That isn't easy again, because very often they will have told themselves a story, a narrative about this. And very often in that narrative, they are totally innocent. They haven't done anything to, you know, particularly if it's something a wrong done to them, yeah, I've, it's, 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 you know, my, it's uh, my boss or my co that it's, it's all, it's all them and they're, 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 they are behaving um, wrongly and unfairly and, and so forth. And just looking at that, you know, how, how much of this is uh, you are taking responsibility for? And so looking at the responsibilities here, they, <clears throat> they need to be willing to be challenged about their assumptions and indeed to challenge themselves. They need to recognize their values and you can help them with that, but then they need to have the courage to act according to their values. And we can't make them do that, but we can, be, we can create clarity around what being courageous would mean in those situations and the outcomes of being courageous. Of course, confidentiality. What you say, what you say to them and they say to you has to be confidential. It has to be confidential. <clears throat> but unless, of course, they're telling you something that is basically um, illegal, um, where you have a, a, a again a, a, a legal requirement to do something about it. And that that then that that happens more often than you might expect. They need to take time to reflect beforehand and afterwards about the conversation you have. And again, we're back to courage, looking at the systemic barriers to ethicality. What's actually happening here? The fear culture, being one of those. Nobody dares speak up here, because if you do, you, you're, you, you, get, uh, you get all the lousy jobs to do, or, or you're likely to be fired, or whatever. So these are just some of the things that, that I think are important to, to agree with a client before you start to, to being an ethical mentor or coach to them. And <clears throat> what we've found is a, we have a framework here for the ethical dialogue. So we help them to articulate the problem, look at the context, think about the implications, look at other perspectives, balance the arguments, and then do a final check. These six elements um, basically undermine all effective ethical coaching conversations. And we've already talked um, about some of the, the, the fears they may have, but very often they'll come to you, they haven't had time to think it all through, they don't understand the consequences of, the, of their own actions and decisions. Um, they may have stormed out of a meeting, for example. Um, they, are, they may perceive that the unethical behavior is the norm. 
they won't, it's, it's, it's a, 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 the culture of the team they work in. Or they really don't want to know. They want to dump the problem on you. That's very common as well. That I'm, I'm bringing you <coughs> the ethical dilemma um, that, that I've got. So you can be my rescuer. Welcome to the drama triangle. Um, and of course, we, we can't be, get stuck into there. Adam Grant's lovely work on whether people speak up is, 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 uh, is great. Now, I won't go into this in detail, but I, I recommend it as reading. Um, you, you've got four choices here. You can try and change the situation. You can try and maintain the status quo. Um, you can take action which is detrimental to the organization or action which is beneficial to the organization. And there's only one of these which actually change things, changes things to the organization in a beneficial way, and that's to have voice. But how do you have voice? Where does voice come from? Who is when you have voice, people listen to you. But who listens to the, to the, to the, lone, to, to the lone voice in the wilderness? Nobody. And one of the key things that we can do as, as, as ethical coaches and mentors is to help the person develop the network of people who can actually speak up as a group rather than just as, as isolated individuals. And <clears throat> to, to explore with them, what would it take for you to have voice? And I think you know, the, the Me Too movement is a wonderful example of how um, a few powerful, few strong people came together and started, and, 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 and together they, they spoke out. And where it'd be one, one here and there and nobody taking much notice, when they spoke out together, people started to listen. And then other people came and spoke out too. And the Black Lives Matter protests as well. These have had a similar, a similar evolution. So part of our role as a coach is helping people to find the mechanisms by which they can find voice. Um, and that's a really challenging one. Um, so who else is out there who's prepared to, um, to, to do something about, about this? Um, I actually, I, it just reminded me of a story that I, I haven't thought of for many years. And this happened in one of the big um, United Nations um, organizations. Um, and it was um, a, um, a manager who um, was, a, was a bit too free with his hands. Um, and, um, uh, and, this, um, uh, and when um, a, 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 um, a young woman in his, in his a new, new recruiting into his department, um, found him being behaving in this inappropriate manner. Um, <clears throat> she went and, 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 and shocked, she talked to some of her colleagues, I, and they all said, oh yes, well that's him, uh, just, just ignore it. And she said, well I can't do that. And they said, well you won't get anywhere in this organisation, nobody will listen to you. And she talked to people outside the department and they said, no, 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 nobody will listen to you, they're not interested. Um, and so what she did was to, um, uh, uh, she, she photocopied one, e one evening, um, some posters and, and she, I don't know how many, but there were a lot of them. Um, and these posters said, watch out girls, Mr. So-and-so has, 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 gone, has, has gone from, from doing this to doing that. Um, 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 watch, watch out for his hands. Um, and then she put these in the, in, in, in the lift, in, the lift uh, in, in, in each of the elevators, in the lifts. She put them on the stairwells. She put them on the, on the back doors from the car park. She put them all over the building. Um, and of course, suddenly it all came out of the woodwork again. People felt in, in, empowered to say something. That's uh, her, what courage she had. Uh, 
a, a wonderful example. Not necessarily that they're a role model for doing it all, but, but certainly a role model for courage. When we make decisions, ethical or, un or particularly ethical decisions, we've got two logics here. The logic of consequence. What course of action will produce the best result? And the logic of appropriateness. What does a person like me do in a situation like this? And the classic thought experiment here, <coughs> done in thousands of ethics classes, is the one of, of the runaway railway uh, um, wagon. Um, you're, stand, you're, you're walking along and you're right by the lever that moves, the, 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 that can take this runaway wagon um, <coughs> um, away from, um, from uh, uh, the path it's on, where it's, going to, where, where, where it's going to kill a whole load of railway workers. Um, and you can shift it to one where it's going to just kill an old man walking his dog. And if you take the logical consequence, well, you should push the lever because you're going to kill, fewer people are going to die. If you take the logic of appropriateness, you say, yes, but who am I to make that decision, a decision about who should live and die? And that classic dilemma is one that, you know, <clears throat> there, again, there is no right answer to this. We all come to it in, diff in different ways. But <clears throat> if we can apply both, both ways of thinking, then we tend to have a much more balanced ethical um, uh, decision-making. So the first element is articulate the problem. So who's involved in this problem? Um, how are they involved? Um, why, why are they affected by it? What's the nature of this conflict of interest? What are the values that are involved here? So pretty much just get the clarity around these kind of issues. And then the context. So let's look at who's indirectly involved with this. And who's, who's, where, where, the, where is there like to be fallout among us, amongst other people, for example? <coughs> is it a recurrent issue or, or, or simply another one, in, um, an old one? Or is it something new that you've not seen before? And I love this question. What are your, your specific and general responsibilities. So looking at both of those things, who's being consulted and who needs to be consulted? And have they really been consulted or just, or just a quick, like, like a quick um, local authority survey, survey whenever all the decisions have been made? Um, um, is there a relevant code of conduct, a guideline here? And <clears throat> what's the general ethical climate here? Does that push people to, does, how does that influence things? And then the implications. So what about the risks involved? And of course there's safety risks, there's financial risks, but reputational risk too. What about the long-term risks that are involved here? I was at, um, sitting in a board meeting of a large company, a uh, multinational company years ago. And the chairman was saying, Look at the results <clears throat> from our Italian subsidiary. Aren't they brilliant? Um, you know, if only all the other countries could be reporting results like that. And then one of the non-executive directors said, yes, but at what cost? And there was a little puzzle went around the table and said, well, just look at, let's look at some of the other data here. Um, out of the top 20, three of them have had heart attacks um, 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 one has died, um, one, has, one is on long-term leave, and the other one is, 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 is back on half, half time. Um, this, and, and they came up with a number of other criteria. What's going on here? And when they investigated, what they found was 
this, all of these great figures have been at the cost of cutting corners. So in particular, in terms of safety. So <coughs> if, if the risk of a major failure in which many lives would be lost um, with all the catastrophic outcomes of that for the company made the profit that 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 had been that had been paper profit that had been made there minuscule um, and of course they, they had to do something about that and fire the, 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 the chief executive of that, of that division the whole thing was run on fear so looking at the widespread of risks here what precedents are we going to set here if we do this and similar to that, what would be the impact if we did, did this on a much larger scale? And again, that wonderful question, what would the, would the implications be different if we played it out publicly versus privately? If your, if your mother was watching, what would she say? Uh, is, I think, a, a, a lovely question. Um, and it's okay. Then the next question, what other opinions might be relevant? So what, are you trying not to, what, what are you trying not to see here? What are you avoiding acknowledging? Who might provide a robust challenge to your thinking and have you asked them? When you did ask them, did you actually listen to them? Um, what will make people feel more comfortable about speaking up? Have we actually got a climate here that prevents people speaking up? So we're only getting half the picture. And have we genuinely, honestly, sought out and listen to dissenting views and give it and and, and 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 not just listen to them but actually considered them from multiple perspectives and then <coughs> balancing the arguments if somebody came as an impartial advisor would they see our solution as fair um, how can we <coughs> apply appropriate priorities to the these are conflicting objectives and the conflicting values. This phrase, zones of ethical acceptability. So there's an unacceptable uh, um, outcome here or pr process here. There's an unacceptable um, process here. And in the middle, there's a, pro there's, a, there's a chunk where we can make different decisions, but they will be ethically acceptable. How do we define that? <clears throat> Sitting down, mapping out different courses of action and looking at them in terms of their position on that spectrum from totally ethically unacceptable to totally acceptable. And very often the totally acceptable ones aren't feasible simply because there's not, for example, the resources to do it. Doctors are gonna to have to make some pretty hard decisions about you know, the tr who gets treatment um, if, the if the COVID um, epidemic gets out of control, for example. <clears throat> and then the final check. The financial, what decision-making biases might you be applying without realizing it? How honest are you being yourself? I love this question, how pure are your motives? Really gets to the heart. Do you honestly, John, honestly, really, truly think this is the right thing you should be doing? And if we gave the issue more time, would we come to a different conclusion? Those four questions I think are so powerful at the end of, of any decision that has an ethical dimension to it. And we've been training, we've trained over 200 ethical mentors in the, uh, the UK National Health Service, for example. Um, and they're doing a wonderful job helping people, uh, preventing whistleblowing is one of the things that we get, because if somebody might be a whistleblower, what you do is, is you're, you're making sure that they have a route to make their voices, their, their, their voice heard. 
And so the, the occurrence of whistleblowing, we believe, has been significantly um, decreasing, while the, um, the um, amount or, or the, the volume of real issues being surfaced and dealt with has been increasing. So I'm going to shift gear slightly here and <clears throat> talk about some research that we're just about to launch, which is about how you stay authentic and, auth and ethical in a politicized environment. Uh, and this is a survey which is going out very shortly. <coughs> and uh, we can uh, distribute it to everybody on, on the webinar if they would, they would like to take part. But the, the story really of, of coaching beling, belongs in political leadership. Um, Athene, the goddess of wisdom, the original mentor, Machiavelli, the prince, um, and Fenelon, the, Greek, uh, the French cleric, um, who created modern mentoring through his continuing the dialogues of Athena uh, and, turned, and, and was authentic and turned the, uh, the young Dauphin, uh, the prince, uh, the, the, the son of, um, of, the, of King Louis, the sun king, into, uh, from a brat into a, 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 a leader with, with, with conscience and, and, and ethical understanding. Um, we've seen um, coaching and mentoring become instruments of social manipulation and that's great as long as it's for, for, for positive ends. Um, and we've also begun to see coaching and mentoring of politicians. That's much more recent. Um, and, and in fact, I, one of my favorite examples is of a, um, a, a local authority where you have the councillors elected. Um, you have a mentor when you join the council uh, for the first time. But it's not a mentor from your party, it's a mentor from one of the other parties. So, you, th th and I think this is what a, a wonderful way of, way. This, is, this is true authentic coaching and mentoring. So, we can describe politics in many ways, but the two I like is the power to influence and the, the art of expediency. We can't get away from politics, but we, sometimes we think of politics as a bad thing. But, but authentic politics, trying to achieve social change through influence, has to be a, a good thing. It's the, <clears throat> it's the way that politics is used and the purpose for which it's used, uh, which is the, in, the problem. Politics with a big P, um, so uh, party politics, usually driven by expediency, short-term agendas. Uh, been described as a means for the organized few to, to, to control the disorganized masses. And some lovely studies of the uh, Russian Revolution or the American Revolution to show how an organized few people with, with a political agenda could take, could actually seize control of a, of, of a country. Um, and, uh, and we see this happening right now across the world as well. It's, um, it's about creating common narratives that people can, can latch onto because they're comfortable and convenient. Um, and so they, they're, a sort of, they're a, a, a contract, if you like, a psychological contract between the controllers and the controlled. And if you read their wonderful book, Homo Deus, um, that gives you some lovely examples of this. And <clears throat> the trouble with politics is it, it attracts sociopaths. Um, and, the you know, how do you, and, and, and it's very difficult to distinguish sometimes between the idealist and the sociopath. Um, um, the, the idealist desperately wants to achieve a, 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 a change for, for greater good. Uh, the sociopath, of course, wants to achieve change for, that change for their own good. Um, but um, distinguish between the two, not as easy it might, as it might look. So entrepreneurs, interestingly, are not, um, um, obviously they do employ political 
approaches, but they tend to be motivated by, motivated by potential gains. Whereas professional politicians are motivated by avoiding damage or loss in the decisions that they make. Uh, and, and this I think is a fascinating difference. If we are going to be political, we focus on avoiding damage. If we're going to be politically astute or politically aware and authentic, we focus on, on, a, on potential gains. One of the distinguishing factors, which we think we can demonstrate. <clears throat> so, you know, is it wrong always to take decisions based on short-term gains? How would we ha have that conversation with a coaching client? Um, when we apply values, the values we apply in the short term are not necessarily the same as those we apply in the longer term. How do we help our clients distinguish between those two things? Um, what's our responsibility in this context? Let's have some of your thoughts around these questions. I'm from Dumi. Is it ethical for coaches to appoint themselves as moral guardians of society? Hey, oh, wonderful. Brilliant. <laughs> yes. Uh, a great question. Um, and you know, yes, who's to say that your morals are better than their morals? Absolutely. Uh, and my, my instinctive response to that, that is, is to say that our responsibility is to help people be, to be aware of the, the ethical dimensions of the decisions they make or the, way, the, the, the moral, the moral um, outcomes of the decisions they make but it's not to make those decisions for them or to tell them what decisions they should make. But I'm open to catch a challenge on that like everything else. David, that's it for now. We wow. do have some comments from earlier though. I don't know if you want me to yeah, touch on those. We can deal with a few of those now, yeah. Okay, so from Manny, we have how to make ethical decisions in the spare of the moment, like the car example you gave, which doesn't allow such deliberation or logical slow thinking. Does intuition help? I think it does if you can step outside yourself and say, what does a person like me do in a situation like this? So look at the, the look at the, you have those two questions, the logic of consequence and, and the logic of appropriateness. Just apply those two things, those two questions to yourself. Um, and that just begins to, put, to pull out some of the, 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 the two contrasts. Nice. Oh, there is one other question which I find great, a great question. <clears throat> um, wh whichever way I decide, will I respect myself for having done, decided so? I was writing that down very quickly to remember myself. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> and we have a question earlier from Natarajan. As a coach, um, if I feel something is unethical, but my client doesn't believe it that way, how do I deal with it? Well, it's the client's responsibility, ultimately. Um, we, can, we can say, um, well, I, I, I have some difficulty personally with that, but it's, your, it's not my decision, it's, it's your, your decision. Um, but I'm interested in, in how you came to that decision yourself and just just from, would, would, can you explain to me or, or help me to understand how you came to feel that that was uh, that was that was okay so what were the, what were the what were the values you were applying in this in this circumstance um and so we we, we can't we, they, they may well be in their context right we may just not understand their context enough um 
but but we have to make the, but our responsibility is to help them think it through a bit more deeply than they might instinctively do. And David, we have one more, which is a comment, I guess could be a question in a way, is a short-term decision to be in the overall long-term and a nobler ethical aim? I don't quite understand that. Prakash, could you explain that a little bit more, reword it, if possible? Tell you what, let's hold it to the end and then we'll come back to it if, if Prakash can, can put another comment in. Okay, thank you for those, th those thoughts. So <clears throat> when we look at the, the politicians, professional politicians, um, uh, what we see is the popularism movement um, in whichever country we want to focus on, it appe appeals to people's fears and their frustrations. And the more that people feel powerless, the more likely they are to go with a popularist agenda and therefore to be polarized. It's much, much harder to motivate people around positive agendas and aspirations. You can do it, you know, we're gonna put a man on the moon, for example. It's, it, it's, a, posit it's a positive aspiration, um, but it's much, much harder to do that. It requires a much higher level of leadership with imagination, creativity, and the leaders themselves must be without fear. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear um, <clears throat> all the precautions that President Putin has taken so that, um, that, so that he can't catch COVID. So, um, I mean, it's, it's being, it's being like, like sort of locked, locked in his own prison and, and uh, with uh, so many precautions, it's like, it was, it's like Fort Knox, um, so the newspaper stories say. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fear, fear is not a great driver of a successful leader. Um, so it's the politics of nightmares rather than dreams we have described it as. And you can ask, is that any different in corporate politics? Um, <clears throat> and um, that's not a question that we have an answer to at this stage. I think we could probably find examples and maybe some of you can offer some of those later. <clears throat> so if you're an executive, you've got political dilemmas like when do you, when do you give people bad news? Um, yet yeah, we're gonna have to make some layoffs in the spring. Do you tell them now in the autumn? Um, so, um, knowing that that means that some of your best talent is going to be gone while you still need them. So when do you tell when do you, when do, you do these things? Um, how, how much information do we give people? I learned the hard way as the chairman of a company um, not to give everybody in the organization the, 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 all the financial reports because they all thought we were going bust when actually we were doing brilliantly than better than any of our competitors. Um, but they didn't understand the data that they got. So we, we had to spend a whole lot of time educating people in how to read and read um, financial reports before we gave the things to them. Um, <clears throat> I think this statement, every executive appointment is a political appointment, has a lot of, lot of truth to it. We make the decision on a whole bunch of, of, of issues relating to expediency. And no matter what, what instructions we give the headhunter, um, that, that, that politics will play a significant role in almost every appointment. Um, and we notice that, um, you know, when is the right time to actually bring about a significant change? And again, Adam Grant's book <coughs> is excellent in looking at how, how people bide their time, they build up their networks, they get voice, they get more than voice, they get influence. Um, and, um, and, and, and when they've got influence, then they can, they, they can act and, make, and bring about positive change. And then 
I'm going to skip this one because I don't think we've got time for this one. Um, I think just the questions around what, where does the coach go? Yeah, when you've got, somebody's already ind indicated their questions, you, you've got expedient, potentially unethical behaviour. What do you do to avoid colluding with it? Yeah. Uh, how do you maintain your own purity, if you like? Or should you be, or should you be worried about that? What's, what is it, what's the right thing to do? We're back into the politics of, a, of expediency versus the politics of, a, of, of appropriateness. And <clears throat> can you, you know, should you be supporting uh, your client in a political battle with, with a rival in, in, in the organization without knowing anything about that rival except what you're told by your client? Is it okay to do that? Um, what would you feel about coaching a politician whose views you strongly disagreed with? Who's, who's particularly, you know, if, if you felt this person was racist, for example, uh, um, or, or um, let's not go into many, many examples, you know, you, you, you've, I'm sure you can create your own. <clears throat> what helps is being, seeing the difference between being political, so that's acting politically, and being politically aware or astute or adept. And so you need political awareness to achieve the results you want by, re by remaining authentic. It's no good to ignore the politics in an, in an organization. On the other hand, and, and so we talk about thinking politically, acting with integrity. We have to demonstrate that as coaches, but equally those are the qualities which we, which we hope and try and aspire to develop in our clients. Um, and some of the things that, that, that come into political awareness, what can you actually do with the resources and in the climate that we have in the, within the organization? what can't you do what rules do you have to really stick to which ones should you work around what are the prevailing attitudes and myths in this organization how do we actually make decisions you know, how many decisions are actually made informally rather than formally and then ratified <coughs> um, at, the, at the formal meetings um, where where are formal decisions made um, a, 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 a fascinating piece of history with, with a little study that many years ago, I've lost track of where it was, but it looked at where people found out about job opportunities. Um, um, and it, 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 it had strong correlations to uh, diversity issues. What it found out was that, <coughs> that, the, um, that a significant proportion of um, job opportunities were made, people were made aware of them in the gents lavatory. The old boy network, you know, you were standing washing your hands, you'd have a chat with a senior person, and they would tell you <coughs> about something to your advantage. Um, and of course, because ladies are not, not normally invited into, into that environment, it, was, it, was, it, it turned out to be quite a significant factor in, in, um, in, 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 uh, in, in the glass ceiling. Um, now, I've never seen that kind of study replicated, but um, whether it's true or not, it's the illustrative of the kind of subtle things that go on, the, polit the politicized environments. Um, what carries greatest credibility in making you list being listened to? Who do people listen to most and not listen to? Again, we're back into diversity issues. Um, which networks have the biggest influence in an organization? Um, the behaviors that people um, react positively and negatively, or the system reacts positively and negatively towards. And very often, people who rock the boat, yeah, that's regarded as negatively. If that's the case, then you have a real problem in that organization. <clears throat> How do you deal with mistakes? 
Are mistakes seen as a, a, a great learning opportunity or something to be castigated for? What are the issues that top management never likes to talk about? Mm. Um, and how do you gain access to decision makers and budget holders within the organization? These are all areas that politic where if you understand these <clears throat> and are able to work with them, this is about being politically adept inside the organization. And this, I think I actually find this quite a helpful checklist. If we're helping somebody think about building their career in an organization, working through this checklist and getting them to, to actually understand how do I work in, in, in each of these contexts? Um, so, so they understand the difference between, in, in terms of reputation building between boasting about what you do and actually having other people actually um, boasting about what you do on your behalf. So many things that we can do to actually help people in an authentic way and for, by them being authentic too. So I like these four questions too for, an authentic, to, <coughs> for the leader to help them be authentic. Get them succinctly to describe their personal values or and this is for you actually um, uh, as a coach but how can you describe your personal values and how they contribute to your identity as a coach. When you live up to those values and your aspired identity, what's happening around you? When do you least live up to them? And how do you calibrate how authentic I'm being? So each of these questions you can ask yourself, you can ask the leader that you're working with or the client that you're working with. So they're for both of you. And I think being, but it's important to ask them about, about ourselves before we ask them of our clients. Because we need that self-awareness to be authentic ourselves. And after all, if the client says, well, how would you answer that question? It's a good idea to have thought that one through first. So <clears throat> if you want to develop authenticity, you need to know yourself. What are your own values, your identity? What's your evolving life story? And again, these are all for you as coaches and for your clients. How can you be yourself? How, what, could, what do you do on a daily basis to be as congruent as possible with those elements of yourself? Um, basically, very often it's with, how did I live up to my ideal self today? Um, it's interesting that there is a, people have a, an ethical balance or a moral balance uh, in general. And the way that it works is this. <clears throat> you come out from home in the morning um, and you're in a hurry to get to, the, to, to your car and you trip over the neighbor's cat and drop all your papers. And you're so annoyed that you kick the neighbor's cat. I'm sure none of you would do this, by the way. Uh, but, it, uh, but, the, but, um, but you feel so guilty about this that all the way to work there, you've, you've upset your moral equilibrium. I am not the good person I thought I was. <clears throat> so you stick to all the traffic lights and when you get to the office, you see, you see somebody begging outside and you put, so you're quite generous towards giving them some money as you go into the office. Um, on the other hand, you've, if, you've, um, if you've had um, a great day in the office and you've, you've, you feel a lot of pressure, you might come out of the office um, you, and you would give, and, you, and, you, and because you, you feel above your, um, your normal equilibrium, you're, and you're, I'm, I'm, I really lived up to the, the wonderful person, the ideal person that I am, that gives you perfect carte blanche to drive through every red light, um, exceed the speed limit, and woe betide the poor neighbor's cat if it gets in your way. Um, and this, this, this moral equilibrium, with this balance that we have, <clears throat> we're constantly playing with it and being aware of our moral balance and, and actually saying, am I kidding myself here? What is actually happening inside me here? 
knowing yourself and self honesty and self-management recognize when you don't live up to your ideal self think about what causes you to do that to live up to your ideal self or not listen to other people when they talk when they and their perspectives on you and the way that you behave and be forgiving of yourself because none of us is perfect if, and having compassion for ourselves is one of the most important ways of actually developing our authenticity. Um, so, if we want to help people manage politics, <coughs> here are some of the, 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 the questions we might ask as well. So, the key players and their motivations, both their overt motivations and their covert motivations. What will make those, those key players consider you or your team as part of as, as important to their strategy? so they want to cultivate you what resources and skills do you have that they'll find useful what can you do to make you aware as a politically of you as a politically strategic resource what are the core values that you want to uphold regardless of the pressures from other people the the, the no-go areas i will not compromise on these areas how can you establish those boundaries without creating enemies and what resources do you have and what can you do to, to get advance warning when there's going to be some politically motivated change in the organization? These are all, I think, some of the most powerful questions we can ask to help somebody. How do you actually get to work with politics um, so that you're, again, politically astute and, and, and ra rather than political? And so even more. <clears throat> What can you do? Have you thinking about in advance the resources you've got to block damaging and politically motivated change? Having your, your armies all drawn up or your reserves already in place. When should you have them in place? What have you got in your favor bank towards other people? What, do you, what about the intent of your boss and your boss's boss and the key colleagues? What do you actually know about their intent? What about all those? undercurrents in the organization those compensate those hidden conversations those things which aren't which have not come into the open yet where the mutterings of dissent or discontent the principles you won't let go of and your champions and supporters how are you keeping them motivated to support you all of these things are not about being political they're about being about creating the resources that enable you to remain authentic in a politicized environment and that is really all I had to say. Um, I've got, I've left exactly the right amount of time, a quarter of an hour, for questions, comments, discussion, <coughs> and, um, and, and even, even, even arguments with people who think who wanted to argue with what I've said. So that would be great, even greater. So over to the rest of you. That sounded like a challenge there, David. <laughs> I hope nobody's going to be overly political with me. <laughs> They're holding back at the moment. <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> well, let's start with some of those things that were left over from before. Okay, there's been a lot of comments. Okay, so at the very beginning, we had comments um, like that were in ethical or unethical <laughs> situations. So paying money to get more business. A coaching client is laid off as part of COVID-19 business changes. I think you mentioned that as well. If not prominent, the underlying focus is performance, not necessarily culture, 
values, ethics, sustainability. My client felt that he'd been shortchanged by his employer in terms of not giving him the position he was recruited for and felt that he was being nominated for coaching to keep him from revolting. <laughs> and that's interesting because it's the client's perception. And the question here that comes up time and time again, what is the conversation that needs to happen between that client and his boss? Um, and that's where we said, is there, is there an ethical dilemma here? But, it, but it's the, the, at the moment, the dilemma is, is, is created by the client's um, internalizing of all of this and creating a, 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 a narrative which may or may not be true. And so as a coach, if we collude with that narrative, <clears throat> and assuming it's correct, that, that could be held to be unethical. Comment. It sounds like you must be very self-aware in order to be aware of good and bad ethics. Yes, I think it's an essential part of it. You need to be wise, basically. And bending hiring policies in favour of a decision maker of a public sector client giving business. Mm. And, and there's no simple answer to these. If you, I think basically, if you know and have evidence that something that is being done is unethical and that you are being asked to collude with that, then that is a time as a coach to say, I cannot do that. And we have a question here which says, my assignment company wants the coachee to be retained and improve <coughs> on high impact contribution. The role is limited in long term and the coachee would be able to do better to seek some other company job. What should the coach do? Again, I think the conversation it comes down to what is the conversation that client needs to have with the boss and HR and others. So much, so much of the, so many of the dilemmas we see are simply for a fa the courage failure of the client to have the, the appropriate conversation. Or it could be the courage failure by their boss or other people. But having, that, having the, the right conversation tends to resolve many of the dilemmas. And David, I think that's it. We have a few comments about <coughs> the, the changing frame of reference for mm. ethics that you mentioned and how that's been really insightful. Um, I must admit, I wrote that down as well for something to talk about. Um, with my groups because it is a very interesting point and lots of thank yous thanks a ton mm, great I, I see that somebody referred us to an article um <laughs> i don't know if we can get hold of that uh, so three cognitive three cognitive biases of racism at work the world economic forum so that looks um, um uh, quite interesting and i always have to issue the invitation if people want to um to, i always accept invitations from coaches to to uh, uh, on linkedin so it's to, to connect there so please do if that's if you'd like to do that please do um but if there are no more questions then we, we then yeah i can go get another, another cup of tea um uh, and i'm always available at the end of an of an email so um the, the um i think on the slides i've got the uh, my email address so Please do, please do, if you've got more thoughts, queries uh, around this whole area. Uh, the link to the survey is, we're going to be putting the survey out in the next week or two. Uh, we're just doing the final completion of it on SurveyMonkey. Uh, and there will be a survey to, um, to supervisors, a survey to coaches, and a survey to leaders. Thank um, you, David. We have a question. I think you've seen it. You had a slide on political awareness. 
and corporations? Would these be much different for local authorities or working with politicians? I think they could probably be pretty similar. Yeah, you might want to adapt them slightly. And yes, yes, we will share the slide deck. You're um, welcome to do that. <coughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I reckon everyone will agree with me with saying that was very thought provoking, very insightful. And I imagine if anyone's taken five pages of notes like I have, <laughs> they've learned a lot as well. So thank you so, so much, David. Um, we really appreciate this. So thank you for joining us. Take care and stay safe, everybody. Stay Thank safe, you. stay well. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can listen and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We launch new episodes weekly. To learn more about coaching, leadership, and self-development, visit us at kocharya.com. That's C-O-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A.com. See you next time.